Yuma. My name is Jude Barlow and I'm a Ngunnawal woman. My family are Wallabaloa people, a family group within the Ngunnawal nation. Ngunnawal people are the traditional custodians of Canberra and the surrounding region. And my ancestors have lived on this country for thousands of years, from the mountains to the life-giving rivers. I want to welcome you now to the land of my ancestors, on which the National Gallery of Australia stands. And I will welcome you in the language of my ancestors, a language once thought dead, but we Ngunnawal people, we know it was only sleeping, and we have awoken it. Yangu nalamanyin dunimanyin. Nunuwal wari darwa wari. Darwa nuna nurmbanya. Mara biji mulangari dinila. Gulambani. Naragana wali yeri. Yara binyin. Nona yarwi yangu. Yumalundi. Nunuwal wari. Darwa wari. Today we're all gathering together on Nunuwal country, and this is my ancestor's spiritual homeland. And we are keeping the pathways of our ancestors alive by all of us walking together as one. You may leave your footprints here. Welcome to Nunawal country. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which you are listening to this podcast. And I pay them my profound respects and thank them for their many outstanding contributions to the life of this nation. Janimaba. Thank you. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are respectfully advised that this recording may contain voices of and references to deceased people. Where possible, permission has been sought to include their names. Artists Artists is a podcast brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. I'm Jennifer Hickey, and over the course of the series, I'll be chatting with artists about works of art from the national collection that inspire, move or intrigue them. Today we're talking with Janet Lawrence, an Australian artist who was born in 1947 and lives in Warang, Sydney. In 2020-2021, her work was included in the National Gallery exhibition Know My Name, Australian Women Artists 1900 to Now, Part 1. Janet has nine works in the National Collection, including the large-scale installation Requiem 2020. Janet's practice examines our physical, cultural and conflicting relationship to the natural world. Employing different media and at times performance. She creates immersive environments that, in her words, navigate the interconnections between organic elements and systems of nature. Janet, thank you so much for joining me. It's a great pleasure. So, Janet, the first work that you've chosen from the National Collection is Contingent by the German-American artist Eva Hess, who was born in 1936 and died in 1970. It was created in 1969 using cheesecloth, latex and fibreglass, and it's an enormous, enigmatic golden and white sculpture that stands over three metres tall, and it appears to float in the air like mysterious sails. When did you first come across this artwork? 
I had seen quite a bit of Eva Hess's work when I lived in New York. I'd been very interested in her. But I think that particular work I'd seen imaged um, because I actually studied her work under Pincus Witten. But I really think the first time I actually saw it was in the National Gallery because I can remember walking in and just feeling incredibly emotionally attached to it, feeling a bit overwhelmed by it. I can remember seeing it there. It was some time ago. And uh, I used to wonder why it wasn't more often hanging, to be honest. (laughs) And what was it about this work that you found overwhelming and that you found really moving? I think it's uh, work very, very much about finding a way of expressing an emotional state that I immediately could read. I think knowing a lot about her obviously makes a huge difference, you know, because I can't look at her work without her story. And also I respond so much to the materiality or matter of of art and that combination that she has there and the lightness of it is something that really is very, it's not earthed at all, but it's materials that you can relate to life on earth as well, even though, of course, we know that they're horrible chemically formed matter that, that in the end was what killed her. So there's a strange dichotomy there in the um, purity of the work and it's really its toxicity. You mentioned that it's hard to look at Eva Hess's work without being aware of or thinking about her life story. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what Eva Hess's life story was? Well, she was German. She married young and started to develop her work and maintained very strong relationship with some of the minimalist artists, particularly Sol LeWitt and Richard Serra. And there's a a great correspondence of letters as she's starting to develop her art. But she has this kind of agonizing experience in trying to evolve the art and trying to accept herself and become an artist. But I think it's quite common, and particularly around that time for women artists to have this, but she was being very encouraged. And I think she really found an incredible language to embody the emotions in such a strange and experimental way of using materials. And I guess that's what I was really interested in. But there is always this emotional overlay of her life that is talked about, and especially as later when she was back in America and she was teaching at Yale, I think, she became very ill and died very young. And all the works she produced, I think, are quite extraordinary. I I remember traveling to a German town to see a show of hers that really was remarkable. But it's always overlaid with this feeling of her whole life because that was made so public. The works are so atmospheric and they are very delicate, but they're also robust. Do you think that this knowledge of her tragically young life, which she may have got the cancer that killed her from the very material she was using, how does this affect a reading of the work? Oh, I think it's inseparable. I mean, I think we always carry all that knowledge with us when we look at art. And I think as artists, when we look at work, 
uh, well, I find that naturally gravitate to what you love because of your own interest in it in some way. So you never really see it very objectively, of course. But I think that particular work in the gallery is my favorite of all her works anyway. And I think it is the incredible way it both floats and still has a sense of materiality about it. And do you feel that Eva Hess's work has influenced your own treatment of materials or approach to using materials? Yes, I'm sure. I looked at her a lot because I was a student in New York at the time when I was seeing her work, and I definitely was interested in materials and matter and also in how the material can speak itself. And I definitely saw that in her work and also the strangeness of some of her materials. Of course, a lot of her work ends up looking quite surrealistic and um, some of the forms she developed. But overwhelmingly, I think I was interested in the fact that she could express emotion through them. So this work was, of course, made in 1969. But it also feels very contemporary in many ways with its sort of radical use of materials and its ambiguity. How do you see its relevance today to the 21st century world? I see it as very relevant. I mean, it can be seen as something that's quite abstract or quite emotional, as I've said. But I do feel it's a very contemporary work in its use of materials, in the way it hangs, in the way you have to move around it, in the way that it's not like just one iconic view of it. And it sets up all sorts of interesting possibilities. The the juxtaposition of those materials and what are they, yeah, I find it still very contemporary. And it's a work I've always loved and I still love it. And it's funny, you know, bringing in that word love, but I guess I just chose works that, you know, I love like that. They mightn't be the the greatest works in the gallery or not, but yeah. Yeah. That's an important element in the work. We'll move on to the second work that you've chosen, and it's Rocks and Mirrors Square 2 by another American artist, Robert Smithson, who was born in 1938 and also died too young in 1973. And it's a very mysterious mirrored cube that is surrounded by basalt rocks and mirrors, and it's just over two metres wide. So when did you first come across this artwork? Again, I was looking at Robert Smithson a lot when I lived in New York. Philosophically, I really responded to him and to his bringing natural history into art. It's something that I had been so interested in and to see an artist like him being accepted for doing this, I thought it was very exciting what he was doing. I love his writings and I love the way that he moves outside the whole gallery and museum into real sites. And this work, obviously, when I saw it in the gallery, I was just so pleased that the gallery did have a work of his. I think it represents his work really well, though because it becomes like he had site works and non-site works. But this work is so ambiguous in the scale of it because of the way the mirror sort of works in the space. If you remove the, the gallery space from around it, it just can become immense or quite miniature. You know, you never really know. Again, it's a work that you walk around, that you are embodied into. I mean, going back to Eva Hess, that's the, the, the thing about that other work is that you're so embodied into it yourself. It's that that human scale almost of those hanging forms. 
I also feel with the Smithson that you walk around, you are within the mirror in parts of you and it invites you into the nature of a place. And I suppose that's what interests me a lot, that I can enter into the being of nature in a place. And I think they're very um, spatially, very exciting and clever. And the use of the materials and the matter of the earth, I find really engaging. And what do you see as the role of the mirror in this work? You know, he's got objects, the rocks that he's brought in from the outside, but the mirror is obviously made by humans. And so what's its symbolic function here, do you think? Well, I think the mirror is also a way of it disappears as well, you know, so that in fact it's the immateriality in the work. So again, it distorts the scale of the work. I would have thought that that was the the main thing for doing that. I agree it's the man-made thing in there, but I don't know, I'm imagining it's just to try and amplify the ambiguity of the scale of the work so you can concentrate just on that matter and the mirror will disappear. But the funny thing is, of course, it puts your own reflection into it, so it brings you into that space, but it is still immaterial. When you first came across Robert Smithson's work and his work as an earth artist and a sculptor and a writer, what was it about it that you think influenced your own artistic imagination? I didn't get the opportunity to see very many works. I just was reading his writings a lot. I'm so interested in matter and the transformation of matter. I mean, I love alchemy and I'm an animist, you know, I want to animate the world. But I was terribly excited by this sort of writing you know I might have gone up the wrong path in being an artist you know probably should have been a scientist or something because I sort of really wanted to make work out of things in nature I'd sort of always done that when I was very young and I wanted to kind of continue doing that but I was always discouraged because you know it wasn't the way you should be working and in fact I got severely criticized as a woman for working with nature (laughs) in my first review ever, can you believe it? So I think um, what appealed to me is that he was really doing that. And I mean, I loved the other earth artists, but I found they were kind of making more big sculptural statements, whereas I think his was much more philosophical and engaging. Given again that this was a work that was made decades ago, what do you see as the contemporary relevance of Robert Smithson today? I was always interested in art of povera and the use of materials in art too. And I still think it's very, very important that we do connect with matter and materials because I think we need that. We need to be connected to earth. I think he's very, very important today because I think we need it so badly today to understand and animate our earth in order to care for it. And I think Art can help in that way to bring attention, you know, to the elements of the earth. So I think he's very relevant. The next work you've chosen is Feathered Fence by New Zealand-born Australian artist Rosalie Gascoigne, who was born in 1917 and died in 1999. Feathered Fence was created in 1979 from white swan feathers, galvanised wire netting 
and synthetic polymer paint on wood. And it's just under a metre tall and almost eight metres wide. And to my mind, it looks a bit like a white wave about to crash. When did you first come across this artwork? I first came across it uh, quite a long time ago when I was in postgraduate studies. I saw images of Rosalie's work and immediately looked for others. And I saw these works in an exhibition and it could have been that specific work or it could have been a similar one because she often made whole series of works of of different things. But I remember so much of her work, I really responded to it. And I loved how it connected to the landscape that it was made in. So I probably really didn't examine that work properly until I did see it in the National Gallery. But I was so chuffed that the work was hanging in front of mine and reflected in a mirror in my work during Know My Name. (laughs) I just felt um, that was a beautiful connection because as a student, I used to visit her and talk to her. And, um, you know, all of these things count for, you know, how you feel about an artwork, don't they? Definitely then, I have to say, an emotional response to this work, but also I do love the fact that they're swan feathers and you sort of think that they were collected from that lake and there were all those swans on that Lake George where she used to wander and collect all her materials. And again, I love that connection to the elements of that place. And Rosalie Gascoigne, like Robert Smithson, had a very deep connection to the land that she worked on. Could you tell us a little bit about her her life? You just mentioned Lake George. Yes, she lived in the hills above Canberra and she started quite late in life and she studied Ikebana in the Sogetsu School in Japan. And I think that has had such an enormous influence on her work in being able to create an order for materials, that these strange gathered materials that she uses. But she loved this place she lived in and collected, as I said, all these masses amounts of materials from around there. She had a studio there with um, accumulated things like everything from, as we know well, her road sign uh, works and boxes and feathers and all sorts of other natural materials. It was quite a sensational experience to walk into her studio uh, and she was a very, she was just an incredibly natural woman, very connected to the land and an important sense of place in her work, I think. Do you feel that her approach to the beauty and imperfection and transience has influenced your understanding of landscape art? I'm sure. I'm sure I was always looking at her work. I mean, you allow these influences to come through, of course, and I love the fact that, yeah, like works can decay and this transience, as you mentioned, is an element of it that gets expressed in the work. But she also has this use of the materials all have a memory. The materials that she selects, they have had a former life and she uses um, you know, much more what I call materials rather than matter. I sort of think of Smithson using the matter of the earth, but Rosalie using materials that have had already a cultural belonging or 
you know, have had some other development beyond just Earth's matter. Yeah, so I think she's very different in that way, but they still connect to place very strongly. And it's interesting to think about Rosalie Gascoigne's work, I think, in terms of our contemporary interest or, you know, need for things like recycling or reusing materials rather than constantly manufacturing materials. Do you think that this is one of the reasons that her work still feels very fresh today? Yes. Well, I think that's a huge thing to read into the work about this recycling. People are always very curious about what they've been recycled from as well. I don't even know that that interested Rosalie so much as just the way she could order materials so that they speak so strongly. Um, and that's a, an incredible skill she had, I think, visually in being able to see that that sort of incredible pattern and, that could come from her juxtaposition of things. But I think she's a very relevant artist. I mean, they're very powerful works but very humble too because of the, you know, the wabi-sabi nature of her work. It's such a Japanese thing, but it fits in so well, you know, with our lives today. I think it's very important to, to learn that lesson of the humility of things is so important. Could you possibly explain what the wabi-sabi approach is? What does that philosophy entail? Oh, the wabi-sabi is how something can look well it looks like it's had a whole life it can look quite old it has its own story attached to it it has a patina it's not fresh and bling it's nothing like that it's just has this sense of age and story to it yeah and that's considered a beauty in japan i consider it a beauty too So, Janet, the final work that you've chosen is White Painting Number no. 2 by the Australian Gumach artist Nepanyapa Yunipingu, who was born in 1945 and died in 2021. And White Painting Number no. 2 was created in 2010 using natural earth pigments and binder on eucalyptus bark, and it's just over a metre and a half tall and half a metre wide. When did you first come across this artwork? I saw some exhibitions of hers at Rosalind Oxley Gallery, actually, in Sydney, and I found them spellbinding as paintings. I guess they're paintings, quite sculptural too, because mostly they're on bark, and there's a beautiful shadow that gets created around them. I found them, wasn't that long ago, probably three years ago, I had an emotional response, really, to these works. And why do you think that was? What was it about these works that moved you so? There's an incredible direct, it's not like painting trying to form anything. It's just like the painter's material on the bark with these big gestural marks, often in the form of stars or that look like flowers almost. But I find that they seem to be like a connection to the cosmos. I don't know how to explain that, except that they are. So, such materiality in it, let's say, as a painting, they just seem much more of an object. And I think the way the the white paint in often slightly pink or sort of pale brown comes into it, the way it gets um, different degrees of fluidity on the bark, 
so that it's at times it's quite transparent and other times it's quite built up. What I feel is looking at those paintings is that they are just done so directly as though there's some incredible voice speaking to her. Straight away, she just puts it all down and I imagine afterwards she says, that's it. I, I find that so powerful. You know, there's no deliberation, no going back. I think there was a time when she was trying to tell us some stories, but then she went and allowed them to be much more free. Yeah, I love that. It's so fresh and you feel, you can see the bark. And I mean, of course, like a lot of the bark paintings, but somehow that the way she painted so directly onto it, just the white and the and the bark, very, very simple in some way and yet very deeply connected to some force. Again, how would you interpret the contemporary relevance of this extraordinary work? They're very powerful, and I think powerful art is always relevant. They really speak like um, a chant or a prayer or something that's just so there. I bought a tiny drawing of hers. I was so transfixed by them. Incredibly beautiful, I think. There's an, an ability, I mean, sort of like with Rosalie or something, the way the materials work, there's an aesthetic that gets developed that's very engaging, that appeals to the senses probably than, than the intellect. So all of the artworks you've chosen to highlight seem to be connected to the transience of a changing world, and they explore materiality simultaneously with a kind of idea around perhaps transcendence or an idea that something can't be fully articulated. How do you interpret the connective tissue between these artworks? Yes, I think they are all very much, as you really so beautifully said, (laughs) they are all using materials or matter to create something that is really more than what they are. And I think that they are all very powerful because of that. And well, three of them are much older works, but I still think that they speak strongly today. I see them very linked by materiality and matter. And as you say, it's the idea of transience and transcendence. I think what it is is how we embody those materials and how we feel happily connected through our bodies and through our senses to the materiality of these works. And I find that's obviously the sort of art I, I respond to. So I think that whole embodiment is such a huge element in the work and why I get a, a certain sensation from those works. They all enable me to to breathe deeply or to to want to embody them. They live somewhere in my memory, but they also live somewhere in my body. This sort of materiality is something much more than just a visual. And these are themes, of course, that you've explored deeply in your own work. Do you see that all four of these works in some ways have impacted on your creative imagination and perhaps directed you to, to new explorations? Yes, I do. I mean, you know, these things filter into you and it's not that I'm sitting down writing notes or anything, but it's just that when you have that experience of love of works, they just enter into you and they live in you and connects into your own language and, you know, they 
sort of occur at different times, I guess, when you're making work, the associations, perhaps they're important artists to me. Yeah. Janet, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fascinating hearing about your influences and choices. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm Jennifer Hickey, and this has been Artists, Artists, brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. This podcast is part of the National Gallery's Know My Name initiative, celebrating the contribution of all women artists to Australia's cultural life. See their art, hear their stories, and know their names. Information about the works of art discussed in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app or listen at nga.gov.au. This is a people-powered podcast made possible through donations to the National Gallery. Your support helps us elevate art, artists, and the National Collection. Make a donation today.